And now, coming to you from the Gershwin Room, high above the Crude Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Ver- Gary K. Wolf with very special guests Adam Roberts and Paul Kincaid on an end-of-the-year, best-of-the-year Crude Street podcast-a-palooza, or something. I I'm guess. the world's podcast. At the end of the... <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, so, hello, everybody. Hello. That didn't work out. That didn't work well, out. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back, Paul, and welcome... Uh... For the first time, Adam, you've not been on a podcast before. No, this is my first ever podcast. <laughs> really? I'm a podcast virgin. Yeah. I hope it's good for you. I hope it's good for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you as you all know, and just to sort of let listeners know, we're here to talk about 2015, the year in science fiction. Adam, I know you've already done some write-ups about it, and. Mm-hmm. The same, I guess, Paul. You've also been working on write-ups and whatever else to, uh, to summarize 2015. Well, I've been, yeah, thinking about it. I haven't actually written it yet. <laughs> and Gary, of course, given that you have to, and I say this as your reviews editor, you have to do an end-of-the-year essay for Locus. I assume that's already finished. Yeah, I wrote it three years ago. <laughs> I've read some of those, and it feels like sometimes that's true. But. I, what I wanted to start with, and I perhaps we'll, th- we'll sort of throw it around to the group. What did you think about 2015 and science fiction, fantasy, horror, genreness as a whole? I mean, not to sort of name names, but we'll start with with Adam. What, what, did, what did you think of the year? It does seem to me a, a, a year that's still a bit overshadowed by the fallout from from the kerfuffle of last year with the sad puppies and the rabid puppies, and it just seems to keep popping up. There's some unhappiness in the kingdom of science fiction and fantasy, most recently over the, the World Fantasy Trophy um, no longer being Lovecraft's beautiful face, and uh, now being something else. There's a fault line that runs through the genre. And the thing that strikes me looking back over the year, actually, is it's, it's kind of puzzling to me. I understand that people have different ideological and political investments in what science fiction and fantasy can do. But if I think, if I picked three titles out of 2015 as really standout novels, um, and I'm not sure I get much disagreement on this. I don't know. Uh, they'd be it's Kim Stanley Robinson's Aurora, which seems to me the best novel of the year, which is an absolutely straight down the line generation starship story. Um, they'd mm. be Anne Leckie finally bringing her ancillary series to a, a really fine uh, conclusion, and that whole series is is gloriously readable military space opera. And then there's, I'm not quite sure whether to count this as a 2015 title, but uh, Lee Tzu Shin's Three-Body Problem, which has kind of come into the public domain, I think, in, in the last year. It's several years old, of course, in its native China, which, again, is a novel that is a great novel. It's a great science fiction novel, but it could have been written at any point, really, over the last four decades. So there's a, there's a real strength in traditional science fiction, the things that the puppies complain of being crowded out of the genre. It's right, right there. I mean, of course, all three of those books do interesting, progressive, new things formally and in terms of the logic of the representations as well. But you get all the satisfactions of reading old-school science fiction reading them. But, but do you think, in fact, that... I mean, I agree with you about the books, but do you think the, the, the cultural phenomena you're talking about really has much to do with science fiction at all, or is it more of, well, two, two, two things in play. One, mm-hmm. uh, a move actually within science fiction towards greater diversity, and then a general f- f- aspect of how social interaction on, in an online world works. 
that it's not actually a genre thing at all. I mean, when I think about the year in science fiction, believe it or not, I don't particularly think about the sad puppy thing. I, I don't want to think it's important. Well, I don't, I don't want to think it's important. I think it's a bit hard to deny that there's, it's brought something to the, uh, to the forefront of, of what genre interaction is about. I absolutely agree. That's partly to do with the logic of social media and the fact that what used to be small-scale affinity groups that would only meet rarely you know, at conventions and so on, it's now a 24-hour, 365-day phenomenon, and that people get disinhibited and people are much ruder online than they would be in person, and so that it all gets very heated very quickly. But this, you don't think there's something kind of going on in science fiction and in terms of the... Well, okay, if I was going to sort of derail us slightly and sort of get into this for a second, to, to take it to its simplest, what I think is... I'm sorry, I've, de- I've no. derailed right at the beginning. I know, it's a, that's, it's, it's, that's exactly true. No, no. Okay. <laughs> and I, I really want to know what Gary and Paul think as well, but just quickly, what I think is happening is I think we're refighting the whole uh, New Wave versus Campbellian SF argument again, as we have incessantly. It's just that it's been allowed in this particular flare-up to be more public than it usually is. I don't think there's anything particularly novel being said or anything particularly new being said. It's more obnoxious. It's more socially mm. divisive because we're living in the pockets of it all the time. And it's possible... I mean, it's not that world that it was in 1967 where you got furious, went home, sat down, wrote a long letter, put it into your fanzine, photocopied your fanzine, mail, or just, just ran off copies of your fanzine, sent it off to, to, to people, waited a month and a half, they wrote your response back, and then having calmed down, you wrote something else. It's a flash fire all the time. <clears throat> and that's the thing I think. I, I, I tend to think it's a little bit different, but uh, per, Paul, you were trying to say something. I'd like to hear what your thought is on this. Yeah, I, uh, in a sense, I'm, I agree with Adam. Um, I think basically what's happening is that there is more diversity going on in the whole you know, science fiction fantasy world. It's becoming more evident, more noticeable, more visible. And we don't know how to deal with it, basically. I think that's part of the problem. We just don't know how to cope with the fact that there's science fiction that's not being written in English. There's science fiction that's not being written by white men all the time. And I think there's a large uh, constituency within science fiction that really just doesn't know how to cope with that, with the fact that the science fiction that they grew up with and always believed in is not the same as they remember it. Um, There's also the broader picture. I I think the things that are going on with the sad puppies and the rabid puppies is all tied up with what's going on with Donald Trump and uh, Ben Carson and all the rest of it in in America. There there does seem to be a social fear going on. People are afraid of change, afraid of difference and the fear is coming to dominate and I think all the puppies did was express that fear within science fiction terms. I think I agree with that and that's very close to what I was going to say um, Paul because the it's true there was a, a debate between the old style Campbellian science fiction and, and the, the new wave but if you look at the responses of the conservative editors and writers to the new wave in the 60s and 70s the responses of Lester Del Rey or, or, or Donald Walheim, they were contemptuous, they were uh, dismissive, but they weren't fueled by the kind of rage that seems to be fueling things today, in which I, I agree, it's the same fuel that's, that's led to our most 
apocalyptic science fictional primary season in the United States probably since the early 1950s. Uh, so, so there is something more fundamental there, and it's a, I, th- I think it's a greater uh, level of disaffection and rage rather than simply rejecting experimental kinds of fiction. Yeah, I think, I think rage is the, is the key term. That's, it just seems really angry when you poke your head into any online interaction. And there's anger on both sides, and mm-hmm. righteous fury. And I wonder if, I mean, I, I, I think I, w- I, I wouldn't frame it in terms of golden age and new wave, because I think the big thing that happened in science fiction since then, which has also kind of cast its shadow across 2015, I'm talking about mm. Star Wars, mm. uh, I remember, I mean, I started, I was into science fiction, I was born in the mid-60s, so I was reading science fiction before the first Star Wars film came out, but I remember the big, the fuss it made, I remember how big a deal it was, and you get a sense of that being replayed now. And one of the things Star Wars did was it, it reconfigured science fiction as a primarily visual medium. Instead of being a verbal medium and a literature of ideas and so on, it's now mo- mostly about cool special effects and brilliant design and amazing visuals. And I think the way that figures to me is that an old Jesuit thinker from the 20th century called Walter Ong, who opposed the oral culture, which is pre-literate, with literate culture, mm. And he says one of the things that characterizes old oral is that it's prone to anger. It's a polemical culture. And we have our feeling we're kind of drifting back into a kind of old oral interactions. And everyone seems so angry. I mean, it's kind of ironic to say that in the middle of a podcast, which is a kind of oral <laughs> rather than literary interaction. But what are people mostly going to science fiction for? Are they going for the, for the ideas or for the prose or for the language? Or are they going for the sense of wonder and the, the visuals and the spectacularism? that so characterizes science fiction cinema. Well, I mean, surely there's no single answer to that. That's the problem. There's a vast science fiction community, and uh, people come to it for different reasons. Uh, I think that's reasonably evident. Um, What appears to fire this particular conflict is a kind of cultural resentment. Uh, And and also, frankly, you know... it seems to have been fertile ground that's been exploited by a few people for their own reasons, and that's the, the fact that people have la- allowed it to remain so fertile is what's puzzling. And I agree. I mean, because if you said to me, at any t- in fact, anything more than say two years ago, looking back through my life in science fiction since I first discovered it when I was a, a child, is this a community or a literature that is given to anger and rage? I would have said no. But it seems as though that's not true. I mean, and my own experience, which is not necessarily typical of everybody, when I go to social gatherings of people involved in science fiction, and through my entire life having gone through the conventions or wherever else, it has never been an angry uh, environment particularly, but it seems as though that's now part of the scene. Still. And I mean, and I don't know where it's going to go. Um, st- some of it is, is, is tied into broad, broader trends. I think that the World Fantasy Award issues uh, perhaps tie into broader cultural trends than the sad puppy, rabid puppy conflict, but it too obviously connects to the way the culture is changing and maybe it is this, this change to an oral tradition or an oral interaction which seems to be more personal and more prone to this sort of thing so, I don't know I'm just curious about um, Adam, as, 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 as a novelist, do you feel that this living in a post-Star Wars era changes what you what your readership expects so yeah my readership such as they are i have a small and uh, modest uh, readership 
partly for this reason. Uh, everybody, everybody goes to see science fiction films. The highest grossing film of all time is Avatar. 19 out of the top 20 highest grossing films are all a fantasy or science fiction in one sense or another. Everybody watches Doctor Who. Everybody watches Battlestar Galactica. Very few people, only dedicated fans, buy science fiction novels and short stories. So there's a sense, I think, that the kind of stuff that interests me, which is to do with the the language and the formal possibilities of writing a novel and telling a story are marginal now to where the genre as a whole is. And I don't say that bitter, with any bitterness, that's fine. I mean, I, there's not, no one forces me to write novels, I do it because I love it. But I'm, I mean, some of the big things that happened in 2015, uh, after a huge build-up, they released the Star Wars Battlefront game, yeah. which is also part of this larger phenomenon, and it's an extraordinarily oh. good-looking game, but it has... No story at all. It is just this sequence of very carefully reproduced George Lucas original Star Wars visuals. And that's enough. That's enough for millions of people to buy and then just to interact on that level. I know we're not talking about games particularly. But, no, well, uh, I mean, we're talking about anything to do with, with, with the field. And so, I mean, I think it's true. I, I think people are, well, a lot of people react with on a, a very superficial level, level with the themes and ideas of science fiction, and that's pa- that's part of the community, you know, the, th- the community, or the, the world we're in. Um, perhaps more positively than sad puppy thing. I mean, we, we've mentioned multiculturalism, and I mean, if we're talking about trends and things that you see around happening, you, happening around, it seems to me that that remains the primary, if you like, positive story of science fiction and fantasy in the modern, you know, in 2014-15. I mean, what I noticed more than anything myself were more and more African-based science fiction becoming available and known to us. The whole Afro-futures things, there were some Afro-futures anthologies, there was a couple of magazines, a thing called Omanana that came out, there's a, I think, an Afro-SF magazine now. Some really striking and different kinds of fiction coming from different places. I think that's possibly the single most interesting and encouraging thing. The fact that we are in a year where a non-English speaker won the Hugo Award for a novel written not in English is a major thing. I think that's really positive. Paul, just to sort of throw to you, I mean, we're going to talk about trends. What's your feeling of 2015? Um, Trends in the literature. The thing I... I may just be in the books I've picked up, but what I've noticed an awful lot this year is mainstream fiction that has has pulled in or called on science fictional ideas. You know, Kate Atkinson, Kazuo Ishiguro, uh, David Mitchell, I suppose, although he's pretty well a, a, a genre writer now. Mm. Uh, I, I find a lot more interesting stuff going on on the edges rather than within the, the centre of science fiction now. Okay. Gary? I'm not sure that I would even... I, I, I agree with that. I'm not even sure I'd say that those are the edges anymore. I, think I, I understand what you mean about the, uh, the, the, the mainstream genre. I mean, there, there are things that have happened that uh, would never have happened in a previous year. The, the, essentially, the complete works of Lena Krohn being published by Cheeky Frog Press is something that's unimaginable. And I've not read all of that at all, but this is clearly, you know, uh, partly because I spent part of the summer in Finland and and Sweden, there's there's a huge amount of vibrant work, which is not just the African work that Jonathan mentions, but that's that's becoming available to us in English, and that it's clear from, uh, from, to me at least, from, from the histories of these publications in Finland and Sweden and Norway, that that 
that division, that, that literary versus genre division is something that um, only the older fans in those countries are even aware of um, because a writer like Johanna Senesalo is clearly one of the major uh, you know, Finnish writers in or out of genre. And I think that that attitude, the more we import that attitude, the more uh, we end up with writers like, uh, they, well, they may not have had, um, uh, their novels may not have been 2015 novels, but the no- novelists like Eden LaFakir or Emily St. John Mandel, who feel very comfortable with the stuff of science fiction. They, they may not talk about it much publicly, partly because their publicists ask them not to, I think. But, but by and large, I think what we're getting is uh, a, a generation of writers who are, who are comfortable with the tropes of science fiction, even though they may not be marketed that way. Of course, that takes us straight back to the sad puppies and the <laughs> rabbit puppies, doesn't well, it? That's exactly, you know, that's the thing that they're afraid of. I think. Yeah. Well, it's also, although Gary's, Gary's too modest to mention it, it's also Gary, Gary's theory about evaporating genres, that if they, they're evaporating in order to condense into culture more generally, we are living in a science fiction and fantasy saturated culture now. And in fact, I think, hmm. the, I would put it the other way around, I think. I think there is such a thing as literary fiction, mainstream, the mainstream novel. Hmm. Um, and I think it's, it is a more interesting and a more varied form than just people committing adultery in, in Hampstead. But I think it is a genre of its own, and it's quite small beer in contemporary literary life. If we, look, if we take a view across the whole of the 21st century, 15 years into it, the big literary events of the century so far have all been YA fantasy novel series written by women. Uh, so we're talking Harry Potter, and we're talking The Twilight, mm-hmm. and we're talking The Hunger Games... And these are, everybody reads these. These are now global culture. And especially the uh, Hunger Games is a it's classic dystopian science fiction that is, everyone's completely comfortable with these tropes. No one needs to be educated into what that means. It's, mm. We all know this. I, th- I feel sorry for literary authors now. It's harder for them to get reviews. It's harder for them to get noticed. No one's really reading them outside small coteries. It's much easier being a science fiction writer. And, and certainly if you include things like superhero mythology and comics and whatever else into it, it is the mainstream of contemporary culture right now. Uh, I mean, yeah. we are inundated in many cases with fine examples, but we're inundated with perpetual Marvel Cinematic Universe stuff and uh, DC Cinematic Universe stuff, and it spills over onto television, onto film, into everything else. And it is fundamentally science fictional in many ways. Um, so... I mean, the, the old idea that we were in su- some way that science fiction was somewhere uh, not the mainstream has become not a particularly meaningful thing, and it really—I I don't know that we should be surprised. And I'm not saying that anybody here is, but I don't think we should be surprised when we find that what we would consider mainstream literary writers have, in fact, absorbed exactly the same influences, and you're starting to see those same things come through in the kind of books that they're that they're writing, whether they be Margaret Atwood's or David Mitchell's or anybody else. You know, I don't mm-hmm. think it's particularly surprising. I mean, what I, I also saw looking around this year is I saw, and maybe it's just the particular sort of slice of, of fiction that my, my own reading took, I saw more major writers producing major novels in the science fiction, science fiction particularly, that seemed to actually grapple with contemporary issues in a really useful and meaningful way. You know, I look around at without, I mean, I look, I look around at things like Paolo Bacigalupi's book, James Bradley's book, Dave Hutchison's book. Even uh, Aurora, or for all that it's a classic generation starship novel, really is talking directly about what we're, we're confronting now. Uh, and I, I feel like I've seen less of that in the preceding 
half dozen dozen years. And I think that's a really encouraging thing that we're seeing that that you know sort of that kind of substantial science fiction being written right now. You know. I tend to agree yeah. with that, although yeah. at the same time, uh, one of the novels that's down on my list, and we've already started with Aurora, which is a novel which deliberately enters into dialogue with earlier science fiction. It's, it's, it's a novel which is, it's a, it's, it, it may be the best generation Starship novel, although some, some other hard science fiction writers have taken you know, issue with some of the extrapolation in it. But it's, it's, it's obviously something which addresses science fiction. And another novel which I have further down on my list, which is Ian McDonald's Luna, yeah. very deliberately mm. addresses an old science fiction trope. And interestingly enough, considering what we've been talking about popular culture, addresses a kind of soap opera trope as well, uh, so that you do have a very well-thought-out corporatized moon colony, which is also squabbling fantasies, which uh, families which um, which have been described by the author as, you know, Dallas on the moon. So it seems to me that that, that kind of strides, to, uh, strides across two areas. One, it's clearly elusive to popular culture, enough so, I guess, that CBS television is interested in it. And it's clearly elusive to older science fiction as well. Very true. Well, actually, I was going to say that, I mean, what, what we'd nominally said we were going to do, and we've kind of preempted it, but I might sort of take it back a little to make it easier for, for, read, for, for listeners. Uh, I said we maybe were going to talk about what our individual top fives of the year were on science fictional books or movies or whatever it might be that we want to talk about. And we'd maybe run around the group and then talk about that in total towards the end, because I think there's going to be, I suspect there's going to be more consensus than in other years that you know, might have been the case. And I know you've talked about a cu- mentioned a couple of books already, Adam. But what would be your top five books of tw- or whatever of 2015? I, I mean, I, I I would put Aurora at the top of my list. I think it seems to me a magnificent novel. I mean, I'm, I'm a long-standing Kim Stanley Robinson fan, and some of his books work better than other books. But he seems to be one of the major writers working today, and I think Aurora might be his his best novel. And it's partly because it does have exactly that. The, the sophisticated layering that Gary is talking about, that it's possible to read it as a straightforward and enjoyable, the very narratively gripping Generation Starship story, but it's also very specifically in dialogue with the backlist of science fiction. It's a, a kind of liberal left-wing rewriting of the cold equations and a refusal to accept that we're defined by the, the heartless logic of, of physics in space and so on. And it's, it's beautifully written, and it's, a, it's also a story about a, an AI coming to consciousness, which is extraordinarily sensitively rendered. And it's kind of the whole package. It's, it's, it seemed to me resonant and deep, and did all the, it does all the things that, that made me fall in love with science fiction in the first place, but in a very clever, sophisticated way. Um, I, what else? What I, I mentioned um, Anne Leckie's book, it seems, I don't think we can avoid talking about it now that she's finished her trilogy and we can look at the whole trilogy. Uh, and again, it seems it gives you all the satisfactions of traditional science fiction, but it does some very clever things with, uh, with gender. Uh, I did like um, uh, Lee Tzu Shin's three-body problem, um, possibly less than some other people did. And I, I'm, I'm, I applaud the fact that it won the Hugo. That is a great thing. And I absolutely agree with the thing we're all saying about the... the the merit of diversifying science fiction, science fiction becoming a global phenomenon. We could mention the Haikusuru brand that's bringing uh, Japanese science fiction to English language readers, which is a tremendously good thing. There's a lot of interesting African science fiction coming out. I might mention Nick Wood's book, Azanian Bridges. I'm not sure if that's out yet, actually, but a very beautifully written work that explores what modern South Africa is like. Uh, Jonathan, you mentioned 
James Bradley's mm-hmm. Clade, which is an extraordinary novel about the near future of climate change. Writers coming from all across the world to um, express a much more inclusive and a globally engaged vision of what science fiction is possible for. I did like Luna. Luna is very, very readable. It didn't seem to me so much Dallas on the moon as Game of Thrones on the moon. I mean, it's high tech and Game of Thrones isn't, but it's, yeah. it's quite sexy and it's quite murderous, actually, but it's intensely readable. I'm looking uh-huh. forward to the, to the follow-up volume. How many am I supposed to do? Five? The other yeah. thing I'd say about 2015, I think, is that this is a sign of health in the genre as, as a whole. There are writers are coming to prominence now, often having worked for many years, um, but they've now kind of come to the front of the genre in a way that suggests this is a genre that the genre is renewing itself. So I'd pick out, I think Claire North is a, is a brilliant writer, and uh, she's been working for years, I know, but she's kind of really bringing her stuff together. Touch was a novel this year, which is a very fine novel. And Dave Hutchinson, who's another, uh, you know, balding white geezer with a beard, but who's really, now that the first two Europe books are out, these are very major works of contemporary science fiction, I think, and they're, they're, what makes them major is not just that they're very beautifully written, they're very well characterised, they're very well put together, it's that they are so full-throated in the way they engage with the non-parochial concerns of what it means to be a European nowadays, what it means to, to live in the modern world. Okay. How about you, Paul? What would you, you, uh, you float as your top five? And there's, there's no reason yeah. not to overlap, so... Uh, it will overlap very slightly with Adam. Um, my top two... Um, well, my number one would be uh, A God in Ruins by Kate Atkinson, which is not really a science fiction book, but it's the sequel to what I thought was one of the best science fiction books of recent years, which was Life After Life. And it reads, for most of a length, as a fairly mainstream account of an ordinary man in post-war Britain. Uh, More disappointments than achievements. And then you start to notice how much the time scales, time frames, are being mixed up and moved around. And it ends up with a a bravura moment when all time collapses back into the... uh, bombing run over Germany where he either died or lived according to how life after life finished uh, hmm. um, I, don't, I, don't mean to, I don't mean to butt in Paul and I agree absolutely life after life is a, is a staggering magnificent novel, one of the great novels of yeah. our time did you think that this was in the same class as that, I enjoyed it very much but not, is it not, quite, in the sa- not, not quite in the same class but it, it still struck me as a major piece of work and I was bowled over by the ending of it when everything mm. collapsed into that one moment uh, I, I thought that was handled with a incredible skill that really really struck me and so it's, it's one of the it's one of my novels of the year um, second I, I'm going through these I'm, I'm saying first and second they're not really first and second I haven't sure. ordered them like that but the next one would be Europe at Midnight, Dave Hutchinson. Yeah. Um, as Adam said, I, I think the, the sequence he's doing, the Europe books, are a stunning piece of work, beautifully constructed, very, very readable. And 
what I like about Europe at Midnight is that it's a sequel to, to Europe in Autumn without actually being a sequel. You know, the, the same setting is there, but it's in the background, it's not foregrounded the way it was. Uh, the main characters... Uh, the main character from Europe at Autumn appears only on the last page of the new book. So he, what he does is a rather bold step, I think, of writing a sequel that is a totally different piece of work and examines a totally different area. Um, next. Uh, Where? By Kit Reed. Who is a writer I think tends to get forgotten in moments like this. And Where struck me as being just beautifully constructed. Um, it's not the most original story, I, you know, the endless stories of people disappearing and and so on, but it, the way she told it, the, the structure of it, the construction, the, you know, she's just a delightful writer, sentence by sentence. I enjoy reading her work so much. And I, I thought, I, for once, I would remember Kit Reed and include her on my list. Um... She does, she does publish a lot of novels that, uh, although they, they, they do well enough for, for tour, they seem to fly under the radar of these lists uh, every year. And this, was, and this was probably the most clearly genre-oriented book she's done in a couple of years. Uh, yeah, I think so. so. I, I'm, I'm glad to see you have that on the list. Yeah. Um, this is where it gets a bit tricky. I'm not sure exactly what my fourth and fifth books would be <laughs> I'm sort of inclined to include Luna and sort of inclined not to um, it's Ian MacDonald and it, it's a, a very fine piece of work but there's a moment about 70 or so pages in when one of the characters starts reminiscing about her life in Brazil <coughs> Mm -hmm. And you suddenly realise that the texture of the book, the texture of the work, has changed totally. Brazil is alive and vivid and tangible in a way that I don't think the moon is in the book. So I'm not totally convinced. Convinced of it. I think he's he's writes better when he's earth based and reality based. And I'm also wondering about including Slade House by David Mitchell, simply because the opening section of it made me made me laugh out loud, and that doesn't happen all that often. I, <laughs> it's uh, it's Mitchell being clever rather than Mitchell being brilliant, but it's it's an enjoyable book. Um, I I rather like. It? I think it's one of the will end up sticking in my memory, so that makes my list. Okay. Well, then we travel around to you, Gary. What about you? What would make up your favourite books, best books, top five of 2015? <laughs> um, well, apart from ones that have already been mentioned, there. I, I, I don't know. The most important, most useful, most. Uh, um, Potentially influential books are not necessarily the same as as, as, as the best. So I, I'll start by talking about a couple of novels that that do different things well, but have essentially the same goal in mind or similar goals in mind. 
and one which has already been mentioned is James Bradley's Clade, uh, and the other being um, Paolo Bacigalupi's The Water Knife. Uh, Clade is, I think, by by almost any measure, the better literary novel of the two. Uh, Bacigalupi, it seems to me, who can be a very skilled writer, has chosen to use a fairly blunt instrument. Uh, he's, he's written a a, a thriller that has black helicopter raids and uh, some spectacular set pieces. Um, but he's a committed writer. He's a writer who wants to really dramatize in a in a publicly accessible way, in a bestseller mode. And so he wrote this as a bestseller. Um, and yet he's, as, as, as an ecological novelist, he's thought through the issues in a way which is so precise it's almost frightening. Um, and I was teaching a course on ecological fiction a couple of years ago, and, and there are novels like Philip Wiley's The End of the Dream, which are just so over the top and so illogical and so not based in any kind of uh, contemporary events, that if, if, if Paolo can write an efficient thriller, which is also a rather terif- with terrifying dystopian moments in it, and convince us that this is... Um, well underway. These are processes that are well underway right now. I think he's written an important novel. Um, that's why I make a distinction with Clade. From a literary point of view, Clade, which deals with some of the same issues, including colony collapse disorder, is, is just this wonderfully textured generational story that shows the world uh, unraveling. It's a very different kind of novel. <clears throat> but I go back to the old, almost uh, primitive notion that science fiction is supposed to change the world, and I think that Paolo Bacigalupi's choice of weapon in writing that novel is a good one. Okay. Anything else? Oh, okay. <laughs> well, you meant you'd have one book. Um, <laughs> no, I, I mentioned two books, though technically Clay is, is, is not one. Uh, well, what I'm going to introduce into the discussion for a minute um, are a couple of... Um, fantasy novels, which we really haven't denied. I guess the remit really was not necessarily to include fantasy, uh, but there were a couple that I thought were strikingly original this year. One was uh, Ken Liu's The Grace of Kings, which is, I normally don't like epic fantasy, and I normally uh, am not that enamored of historical fantasy, but this had a character-driven uh, arc which had a great deal of humor in it. One of the things I've come to appreciate in in fantasy, more than science fiction, if any character has a sense of humor, I'm insanely grateful for that. Uh, and, <laughs> and there's a wonderful trickster figure in, in, in the Ken Liu figure. And the other, which came fairly late in the year, I thought was strikingly original, was Elliot de Bodard's House of Shattered Winds, which is situated somewhere between, I don't know, John Milton, William Blake, and Victor Hugo, I guess. Uh, and it's a very original kind of theological fantasy. If it's possible to have a more or less non-religious theological fantasy set in a ruined Paris, this is probably it. And I just had not read anything similar to that before. Okay. Anything else? Well, let's go on. I've mentioned sometimes. The other thing, the other yeah. thing which I think is worth mentioning, which is, again is not what comes across at the top of our list since we tend to think of novels and we tend to think of science fiction. Uh, I thought China Miebel's Three Moments of an Explosion showed a, a kind of playfulness and level of experimentation that I had not seen from him before. 
And it's it's an uneven collection, but it has some really brilliant pieces in it. And again, some of those pieces are uh, are more fantasy than science fiction, uh, and some of them are playful. But a lot of them reflect the kinds of things we've been talking about about the infiltration of media into fiction. I mean, you've written a series of stories that are essentially screen treatments of previews of unmade motion pictures, um, uh, much in the way that uh, you know people used to write reviews of imaginary books. So. So there's a lot of kind of genre savviness that goes into those pieces of fiction, and I, I use pieces of fiction because not all of them are actually stories in any reasonable sense of term. Okay. No, I, I would I would second that uh, about Neville's collection. And it struck me reading it that this that mode actually an assemblage of lots of variegated pieces suits his skills rather better than writing a, a novel that purports to be a single. A coherent story because his his genius is is one that pulls all directions at once that uh-huh. tugs against the constraints of regular narrative and it, it shows it shows really well I think in his his short pieces when they all pull together like that. I agree. I agree. So I think, yeah, well, well, look, I mean, I don't want to sort of just simply repeat what Adam said and sort of mindlessly say that Aurora was the book that most that most impressed me for 2015. I thought it was... I mean, we're not restricted to science fiction, fantasy, or horror, particularly... It, you know, it can be any, anything, but Aurora was the book that most impressed me. It was the most engaged. It was, I thought, one of the most beautifully written, the most well thought through, the most timely books. I happened to read it uh, directly after I'd read The Water Knife by Paolo Bacigalupi, which, of course, is all about the, you know, the impacts of climate change. And, you know, mm-hmm. well, all, I mean, cast is a thriller, but all you know, to do with, you know, sort of the desperate impacts and how we're going to have to change how we live. And right. running through the core of Aurora is exactly the same message about the importance of ta- take care of the world that we're in, how it's the only world we get, all this sort of thing. And it's beautifully, intelligently done. I thought it was, as much as I love 2312, in some ways a more coherent book than 2312. And I thought that mm-hmm. stood that stood to, to its its great sort of uh, advantage. And I'm less fond of books like um, Shaman, uh, which didn't engage me anywhere near as much. But this just stood out. I've also been, I mean, frankly, flat out surprised by Dave Hutchison over the last 24 months. I mean, to have delivered uh, Euro, you know, Europe in Autumn, which was one of the best books of 2014, and follow it with Europe at Midnight as one of the best books of 2015, and to really I mean, we talk about diversity. We talk about offering different perspectives in the field. But one thing that one area that really doesn't get talked about a lot in Western science fiction is Europe, particularly Europe outside the United Kingdom. Mm. And so, to actually engage with that part of the world, which is such a critical part of the world we live in politically and economically, is really timely and smart. Um, James Clade's Brad, uh, James, James Bradley's Clade, which has been mentioned several times, beautiful, smart. Well, I, haven't, well I haven't read James Clade's book. I have to say, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm sure you'd like it as well. I mean, it is uh, to, to me a, a great puzzle and tragedy <laughs> that Clade is not available outside of Australia. I, I just can't understand that. I thought it stood out. Um, right, perhaps to go to in a slightly different way uh, or a track. I really loved Frances Harding's latest book, The Lie Tree, which is a young adult mm. dark fantasy. She, I think, is the Joan Aiken of the 21st century. She's the one of the most one of the most beautiful writers of YA fiction that I've come across. And there is a real 
depth and uh, substance to what she's doing that impresses me book after book. And this one was a was a really, really wonderful, lovely book. Um, I also really loved Kaya Shante Wilson's The Sorcerer of the Will Deeps, which is a really smart, engaging, well-done um, fantasy. It's, 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 it's just on the cusp of novel length. And sort of probably just sort of to round out, whilst I know, Gary, you've mentioned um, Aliette de Bodard's book, I would actually mention Zen Show's Sorcerer to the Crown, which I really, really enjoyed. I mean, it's more of a bit of fun, but I don't know that it's a bad thing to have something in your reading diet that is a bit of fun. There is an awful lot of serious fiction being done, and her book, and actually also, uh, I don't know if you read Jim Morrow's book, Galapagos Regained, but another fabulous satire, not his absolute best, but another fabulous satire from him that really rounded out the reading year in a really, really um, impressive way. But the banner for, book for me remains, you know, Aurora. And we should say one thing more about Aurora, since that seems to be a, a, a kind of consensus. I've, I've, I've been on this partly because of, of, of being on a review schedule. I, I bring back my idea of having at least some sense of humor, some sense of lightness, some sense of wordplay. And as I think Adam mentioned this earlier, one of the most delightful things about Aurora is is the kind of utterly charming attempts of this spaceship to learn to narrate uh, in, 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 in a yeah. human context. And the, the, the constant sort of refrain of the spaceship in the early um, chapters of the book where, the, uh, where it's being taught, essentially... Is it keeps saying I'm trying. It's, it's it's almost a cartoon character. It's it's every time it it's it's told another thing about narrative. It's not just a it's not just a rather ingenious and uh, and, 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 and delightful um, story about the education of a spaceship. It's a story about the invention of narrative. It's a story about what makes a human narrative as opposed to an account, which is something that struck me as interesting because that's a problem my students have all the time. <laughs> So I would, I mean, I'd certainly, I'd second, Frances Harding is, is a great YA writer, one of the great, I would say she and Patrick Ness are probably the two best YA writers working today, and the uh, is a brilliant novel, it's a very mm. effective piece of writing. And I'd say one thing else, I think, uh, not, that I want, not that people are particularly interested in my personal circumstances, but it so happened that last year, 2015, Going back over the 2014, I was judging a literary prize, so I read something like 105 science fiction fantasy novels that were published in 2014. And it gave me this, this panoptic view of the genre that I don't usually get. And I usually read quite a lot, but not on that scale. And I haven't read that much, or anywhere near that much, of 2015 releases. But one thing that I, occurred to me, one thing I took quite strongly away from that experience, was that... There were, there were a few bad books submitted, and there were a few really good standout books, but most of the books were competent. And when you look around, there's a, an ocean of competence that I, I worry, I think, is swamping not just genre, but literature more generally. There are 40,000 titles are published every year. Most of them are mediocre. Most of them are just passable, because that's the level most writers are happy working at. So I think one, one thing that does is when I come across a novel that is technically really well done, and I think that describes Aurora, I think it describes what Dave Hutchinson's doing, I think it describes uh, Clade, uh, it, it stands out all the more. Uh, and this isn't just a problem in, in science fiction fantasy publishing. I teach creative writing. Mm. There's a, I think it, is, it goes back to this saturation of 
the television and cinema into the imaginations of a whole generation of writers. They're less interested in how to do things with words because they want to achieve cinematic effect and they think they can short-circuit to that with a what is often very very mediocre set of technical chops. But, I mean, can't that same yeah. effect be... be man- Sorry, Paul, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, I, I agree. I, I judge the uh, John W. Campbell Award every year. Mm. Um, which is why I could probably talk for ages about last year's books and I haven't read as many of this year's books because they haven't started coming in for the award yet. <laughs> but, uh, right. yeah, there's so many books that you, you start reading them in high expectation and a page or two in you realise you know exactly how it's going to turn out because it's, it's a nice, competent, well-constructed piece of work that isn't exciting. It doesn't go anywhere fresh or new. It doesn't try anything. And there's too much of that, I think. Uh, It's not just in science fiction, but it's noticeable in science fiction because the tropes that people follow in science fiction are so obvious and so clear. Um, That's uh, So, as Adam says, the books that stand out, the books that do something different, uh, that, that challenge, that move in new directions uh, they stand out so much from the crowd more so than in the past because it's, it strikes me that uh, if, if you talk about science fiction novels of the 50s or mainstream novels of the 50s you could pretty much say the same thing uh, it's, uh, it, it, it's interesting to go back and look at um, writers who um, maybe Bob to the top, and for some reason Angus Wilson's name is coming to mind because when you look at the 50s writers and <laughs> early 60s yeah. writers, um, that's, those are perfectly ordinary novels, except they're better than ordinary novels. And then if you look at a lot of other novels at the same time, in other words, uh, and I'm sure the same thing is true in science fiction, it's that the, the, the paperback shelves in people's collectors' houses are full of completely undistinguished uh, um, novels. There was, uh, I don't know, a novel by, we, we were talking, somebody mentioned The Cold Equations earlier. Uh, he published, I think, one or two novels that are as assiduously undistinguished as anything you ever want. I mean, if you actually want to collect, <laughs> you know, undistinguished fiction, Tom Godwin's two novels will be there. Uh, so I, I, I'm not sure that that's a new issue this year, or are you saying that the contrast is more dramatic? these days than it has been in I the think past. part of the difference, well, there, there are two differences. One is when you're reading for an award and you're reading it all en masse. Ah. The other thing, I think, is just volume. The number mm. of books coming out, the number of books coming in, uh, in to be read, uh, there is just so much more of the perfectly nice, competent, but unexciting mediocrity out there. I think that's absolutely right. It's just the sheer scale of it now. And now that e-publishing is really kicking in in a big way and starting to make an impact on genre, a book like Andy Weir's The Martian only happened because he was able to e-publish it. And that Mm -hmm. seems to me exactly what we're talking about. I mean, it's been very successful. I don't want to knock it, but it's a perfectly mediocre piece of of writing. There just wasn't Mm. wasn't the scale of production in the 50s. I think there's another facet that occurs to me because I'm interested that you mentioned Angus Wilson. And Angus Wilson is, he's not a science fiction writer. He did write a couple of science fiction novels. 
What makes no. what seems to me interesting about him as a writer is that he was a gay writer at a time when it wasn't socially acceptable to be out and gay. His books are about the gay experience in a way that is all coded. It's a bit coded, like Patricia yeah. Highsmith's uh, talented Mr. Ripley. It's, this is this is what gives those stories bite. Whereas now people are uninhibited; they write anything they want, and now that they can e-publish, they'll publish anything they want from. You know, dinosaur porn through to endless military yeah. science fiction series to anything that you want to put out there, you put out there. And there's a sense now, I think, that too many writers are playing tennis without the net, that they're not challenging or stretching themselves because they see no reason to. It's very easy to self-publish, mm. e-publish a book, put it up for 99 cents and sell however many copies. And there are probably more writers alive now. This is sort of supporting both your point and Paul's that Probably more more writers who actually know how to write a science fiction novel than at any time in history. But as you said, they they know it because the template is there. They're filling in the blanks. The writing a novel is mm-hmm. is a version of doing a crossword puzzle for many people, I guess. Yeah, I am sort of curious as to what, I mean, given that we all read perhaps more than the average reader might, and we all pay more attention to the concept, you know, to the to the idea of a you know, genre as, as, as a as a whole, and to this whole idea of best of the year, all of us in various capacities have worked on you know, projects that summarize years in review and all that kind of thing. What is it that, when you look back over a year, makes you decide, for all that it's meaningful or not, that it was bad or good? I mean, I thought 2015, in many ways, was a really good and interesting year. Uh, I mean, yes, there was this flood of mediocrity of competence whatever else but it's the sort of thing that you sort of filter out automatically i feel to some degree uh and so what i look for is i look for half a dozen or so really substantial interesting novels that i can look at and see as being the kind of things that may actually stand some kind of test of time there's something really interesting to say i look and i see that in this year i look around for a crop of new writers who are trying to do new things and I see that both at shorter lengths in, in Kai Wilson, in Osman Malik, in Sam Miller, mm. in Kelly Robson, and these kind of people. And, and people are coming on and beginning to deliver major novels or surprising us with novels that we would never have expected, like Dave Hutchison has. So, I mean, to me, that makes 2015 look like a really good year in many ways, a really interesting year for all that there is mm. all of this other mediocrity. What do you all feel? One of the things I noticed when I was doing the Clark Award was there seems to be a three-year cycle. Um, I don't know whether it's it, it, the same holds true in American or, or Australian fiction, but in, in British fiction there seemed to be a three-year cycle. You'd have one year where there was one absolute standout book and several others that were reasonably close but not there. Then you'd have another year where you virtually knew the shortlist of six books almost from the start, because there were only six books that stood out. And then Mm -hmm. the third year, you'd have too many books to choose from. A lot of good books would come out in the same year, and you knew you'd have to dispense with really top-quality works just to narrow it to the shortlist. And then it'd start all over again. I don't know why that was. Something to do with publishing, something to do with how right, what inspired writers or not. I'm not sure which of those years I would count as good years. <laughs> That's the problem. You know, good um, Go ahead. Yeah, look, looking back now, there are, there are years that I would count, oh, that was a really good year. 
largely because of one novel, you know, and that, that novel that stands out for me and, and I think is, is still a brilliant piece of work. Um, so maybe sometimes, maybe it only takes one really good book to count as a good year. Adam? Was that always the case? I mean, I, yeah. uh, I think. Well, one, one of the things that kind of came up, it came up when, when I was doing this Library of America thing for the 50s. It, it seemed like half of the important novels of the 50s came out in 1953. Um, now we're yeah. looking at the, working on the 60s volume. In 1968, we could do an entire volume, two volumes of 1968 alone. So there are some years that seem to produce just a huge amount of, of influential major works. But. Mm. Uh, mid 1984. Now, and I, if we're if we're defining a good year as you know the year that produced I don't know Childhood's End and Fahrenheit 451 and um, Demolished Man and so forth and so on, then those years are pretty rare. And I don't think that we can expect that sort of thing to happen on any sort of a regular basis. It happens every couple of decades. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if a year is is, a, is too shorter. A, a slot to really say something meaningful I've, about what's happening in science fiction. You, you do need mm. broad perspective. I mean, I certainly, I think the thing that's happening in science fiction at the moment, which is where we started in this podcast, I suppose, is it's becoming. Mm. I'm glad to say, a more global and a more diverse form of literature. And these four old white guys on in the present oh. company chatting away are no longer the face of science fiction. That's a good thing. That's not something that happens in one year. And actually, I wonder if... I mean, I'm, I tread carefully here, because I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm knocking um, Lee Tsushin's novel. I, I thought that... I haven't read the sequels yet, but I thought The Three Body Problems is a very good science fiction novel. I enjoyed it very much. There's a danger, though, that it can become uh-huh. the token novel that says, OK, now we've given a Hugo to a, to a non-Anglophone writer, to a Chinese writer. That's it. Diversity is not a problem anymore. And then we can go back to celebrating lots of white guys. You know, we elected Obama president. You can have an unbroken string of white male presidents from now on because racism is no longer a problem. It clearly doesn't work that way. It works on a longer time yeah. scale. I'm looking back on 2015, various people here have been saying this, I noticed a higher proportion of really good writing from all around the world, from black writers as well as white, from women as well as men, that, uh, that's making an impact. But it's still not really a high enough proportion, and it's part of an ongoing process that will take a while yet, I'd say. Oh, yeah, and I would say, I mean, hopefully we're in the infancy of it. I mean, not the least because, I mean, okay, there are some formal structural barriers to science fiction appearing uniformly in markets that we're familiar with, uh, whether hmm. it be language, whether it just be awareness. I mean, yes, we, you know, we talk about Africanet science fiction, but immediately you have to acknowledge that that's a fairly meaningless term because you're talking about many countries across a continent and each of them has their own uh, art, you know, their own writers, their own cultures and the same through Asia and the same through Europe itself and so it will be another 20 years before it begins to settle down as something where you can say, I'm as likely to encounter something fine from here as there, I am getting different different kind of perspectives because I mean, one of the things which is not perhaps lauded enough I think is the sheer value that we all gain as readers, as commentators, as thinkers about science fiction, from having different perspectives and different voices involved. It enriches mm. what we do, and I'm sure, well, I strongly suspect, I'm not a writer myself, that it enriches what writers do. You know, that the white Anglophone writing community is enriched by all of the rest of this 
uh, fiction that's being brought to our attention. And you're right, Adam. I mean, we're painfully aware of that. This is a, uh, you know, a, a, a panel of four aging white men, and that our, our efforts were insufficient to conquer time zones to bring other views into this particular conversation. Though, as far as the podcast is concerned, we will be take, taking steps to do that you know, more generally. But I think it's fair to point it out, and, I, and I'm also, you know, painfully aware that for all that we've skimmed across five, six, eight titles each to talk about. If we talked a little bit longer, there are all sorts of other books that would come to the fore, whether they be by Nisi Scholl or and- Andrea Andre Harrison, or whether they be by Nora Jemison, or whether they be by Cecil C- Lou. Even his you know, second book came out this year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Dark Earth or the Dark, whatever it was. I'm look no. over my shoulder at the book, away from the microphone. But you know, there is great work to be, work out there, and more to be seen. Well, I think I, I, sorry, yeah. Yeah. And another thing we've talked about a little bit, we've talked about books that are significant for what they mean as gestures, in a sense. Um, or, or, for example, one of the books, which actually was a 2014 book in the UK, but it was 2015 here, was Nettie Okorafor's Lagoon, which is an, another book where she's having a lot of fun. But she's also making a very particular gesture of writing a kind of science fiction narrative which has been ingrained in us in terms of major... Um, White ca- European capitals. We, we, we've seen invasions of London and invasions of Washington. And she took a narrative and very deliberately uh, uh, alluded to the conventions of that narrative, except at the same time writing a, a fairly layered novel about about the culture of Lagos in Nigeria. Now that's somebody who knows her way around science fiction. She has a PhD that involves science fiction and fantasy, and that yet wants to make a specific gesture about uniting uh, the culture of her parents, basically, with the culture that she grew up reading. Uh, and I don't know that Lagoon is even a major one of her novels. I thought it was a lot of fun. But I think it's an important gesture. I think it's actually an important and interesting novel in some ways too, Gary, because, I mean, Adam was talking about the influence of media culture and of gaming and all that sort of thing on fiction. Mm-hmm. And here is a really smart intelligent, gifted writer who's trying to write a science fiction novel deliberately using those kinds of uh, techniques, you know, the, the techniques brought from, from, from you know, media fiction or whatever else, to, to achieve something more substantial. And I think in Lagoon she achieved it. And I think you can see it flow over into the Book of Phoenix, which is also one of the, would have been my, one of my top sort of 15 or so books of the year. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it'll be, it's interesting to see, I think Epic fantasy has both been in, you know, influenced, inspired, affected, pushed forward by the impact of gaming. Science fiction has too, but we've seen less of it coming in a to a really worthwhile, interesting, and sort of substantial outcome yet. And so I think seeing that maybe beginning to happen is an encouraging sign. That's assuming other people pick up that, that sort of torch. It's, it's one of the other things... Questions. Adam? Sorry, Gary. Adam. Oh, you were going to say something. Yeah. No, you go. You go ahead. Well, I just—it's it's dependent to this this question of kind of competence because I, I enjoyed Lagoon very much, but it was—it's it, it very fresh, it's very energetic, and it's not like other novels that I've read, which is clearly praise. That's that's very good, but it did seem to me quite an uneven novel. Bits of it were really well ac- achieved. Bits of it seemed quite crude, and that I think is is much preferable to a kind of bland competence where. As Gary says, we've, we've got the template now and we just fill in the places. This, it felt alive, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think some mm. of the characterization, partly because it was drawing on 
you know, Nigerian game shows and soap operas and so on. And mm-hmm. partly that's my, my sensibilities mismatching the book in some ways. But it was, you know, there's a kind of gnarliness and, and um, peculiarity to the shape and the energy of the book, which marks it out as, as remarkable. I was going to say much the same. I was going to say much the same thing. I mean, I, I actually felt uh, a lot of the same about Liu Shu, uh, Liu Chen's uh, novel. That there was a lot of good stuff in it, but there was a lot of stuff that caught that was was a bit ragged, a bit rough. Uh, oh. And it's actually the roughness that I found interesting about it. And I wonder if part of that is because. Books that emerge from non-white Anglophone cultures, we still we have got to learn how to read them. You know, we don't know what the 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 boxes are that they're necessarily ticking in those in those books. We 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 don't know those cultures, so we don't know quite how the books emerge from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a matter of learning how to read those books and and. It's the learning process is always going to leave those little rough edges that that catch our attention. I would tend to agree very much. Um, so, Gary, where to from here? I, I, I'm, I'm just what, what these discussions always leave me wondering is if we pick up um, five or six more people, which we may do in a later podcast. We were talking about Nettie. What would her list look like? What would Nisi Shaw's list look like? What would Karen Tidbeck's list look like? In other words, um, what fascinates me, as four aging white males, which I think I am aging more rapidly than any of you, uh, we <laughs> don't talk about more rapidly, Gary. Certainly you're further <laughs> along, but I mean, presumably still one minute at a time. I mean, that's, that's the most science fictional comment you've made all, all night. Slide you accelerate. But you know, there, there's a certain amount of consensus here, but there seems to be a certain amount of fascination with the things that we know we don't quite understand. And the the, the ragged edges of fiction are, are, are what I think are fascinating. Things I know I haven't read, things I haven't read about, partly the, con, the construction of any list of, of, of best of the year has to do with what you've read. And if you're reading for a contest like, like Paul has been, you're going to be exposed to a lot more things. In, the, in a year when I was reading for the World Fantasy Award, for the Tiptree Award, I would have had a completely different kind of list because I've been reading different kinds of things. So what I'm always acutely aware of are the things I simply don't know about, things I can't have opinions about, things I didn't get to, things that I've never heard of. Can I say what I find remarkable in some ways about... Th- I mean, yes, we're all uh, demographically similar, but we seem to have a consensus view on the kind of year we've just got through and what stood out. And I think it's going to be really interesting to move into the never-ending awards season that is science fiction and see whether the rest of our community tends to agree with us. You know, I, I mean, I would expect to find ourselves in August, should things go normally, uh, seeing uh, Anne Leckie being applauded, seeing Stan Robinson being applauded. Mm-hmm. I expect all of the American awards to ignore Dave Hutchison, but he'll probably do well at something like the Clarks and the BSFAs, that kind of stuff. And, and, and on one hand, the awards aren't particularly interesting, but it's nice to see that these books are part of a dialogue and that we're at least seeing some form of consensus about where excellence in the field is lying. I think consensus yeah. might be a pipe dream. I'm not sure we're looking <laughs> into a future of 
consensus where science fiction well amongst ourselves people. Adam amongst ourselves so not amongst ourselves well, 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 well no, no not amongst the people who count the only, I mean, the only thing sorry, I can be yeah. sure of is that when the award season comes around I'll disagree with most of it of course because I always do but at least you see you'll, you'll agree with it cordially you know um, yes. Paul which, which, <laughs> is, which is perhaps what we might ask of, 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 you know, of our listeners and those who encounter others that perhaps they, they find a way to, to, to sort of disagree and actually engage with the subject of their disagreement rather than anything else about what's substantially yeah. different in our views about what science fiction and fantasy could and should be doing and what constitutes excellence you know i mean i find myself looking at some of the other titles flagged as being excellent and perhaps overlooked by people like ourselves and at awards time and being puzzled because i don't see the immediate merit in them but, you know, that doesn't mean that there isn't an argument for somebody else to make. And when all of the anger and all of the rage dies down, which I hope it will, mm. I, I look forward to seeing the argument made on a literary basis, mm. not on a historical basis, not on a personal basis. But let's actually hear someone come forward and say, you know, this book, which you don't see, which, which is perhaps a very traditionally structured kind of science fiction novel, is excellent and outstanding for these reasons. That's what I'd like to see happen. Mm. And I think a lot of the anger is, well, I mean, in, in, there, there are some individuals accepted. Most of the anger is not malicious. I think it's just that people care vehemently to a degree that is greater than their capacity for tact and courtesy. And it would be nice to rebalance that equation a little bit. Mm. Mm. Paul? Yeah, Sorry, I I, I'll talk across you. Well, my, my concern is that people care, and this goes back, I guess, to the ideological divide. Um, People care passionately about the kind of fiction that gets awards, about the, the subgenre, about the theme, but do they care as passionately about the quality? Um, there are people who would vote for a space opera which pushes all their buttons over a much better written novel of, like, I don't know, Europe and Autumn, for example. In other words, I'm not sure the passion has to do with any idea of quality at all. I think the passion has to do with, I want my corner of the field to be recognized. And that seemed to me what happened last year. I think that you're uh, not putting yourself in their shoes effectively enough. I think a lot of people believe they're espousing a particular view of quality. It may not be what we might share as a view of quality, but it's actually a, um, a kind of quality, or at least they, they see it. And I think you have to allow that that's true. So, you know... And but we, yes and no. I mean, we could we could go on and on. Yeah, well, we I'm, I'm not a vast I'm not a vast reader of military science fiction. My point is that within the field of military science fiction, there are really good novels and really formulaic ordinary novels. Uh, I'm not sure that some of the people I've met, and I'm not talking about anybody abstract and people I know here in Chicago, uh, who would who would choose to put a military science fiction book on a ballot because they want that represented, even though it may not be even the best military science fiction book. That's the distinction I'm making. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think what we should probably do, since we've you know, just pushed through to, to the top of our hour, that we might begin to sort of wind this up. Um, it's been an interesting conversation. I think there's a lot for our, you know, our readers to take away. I mean, I wouldn't sort of go so far as to say we provide them with, with Christmas shopping lists, but certainly books to look out for, which is a, a valuable thing. Mm. So I think p perhaps what we should do is say thank you to Paul. I really appreciate you making the time. 
and the same you're to welcome. you f- f- for you as well, Adam. I, I really do appreciate you. I mean, I realize you've got a, a soccer game to pay attention to fairly right, soon, and that it's, it's started. So you've got to you've got to get to your soccer game. So well, thank you, seriously. I'm, I'm not I'm not going to the actual match. No, but you want to watch it. I understand. There's, it. there's a certain tension involved yeah. with that kind he, of thing. He may be a masochist, <laughs> but he's not a soccer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Gary, um, I think this brings us to the end of our our podcasting year, pretty much. It does. I'm off to a family Hanukkah celebration this, in a couple of hours now, and then we will be um, probably running some of the um, podcasts we recorded at World Fantasy. I think we will. So I think what it behooves us to say is I, I came across a meme on, on Facebook uh, the other week saying that, that we misunderstand things when we say sorry. And on this podcast, I quite often apologize for rambling, for diversions, and whatever else. And I realize the mistake I'm making is this. I think it'd be worth ending the year by saying thank you to everybody, the thousands of you who listen to the podcast every week. We appreciate you making the time. We appreciate each and every one of our guests, Paul, Adam, and everybody else during the year who's made time to talk to us. And we hope to see you all again, or have you hear us all again, in 2016. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And Gary? Thanks a lot. What do we, where do we finish? Until, I don't know, we're going to start in 2016, we will still be the Cood Street Podcast, and, and still in 2016, no one will have any idea of what the hell Cood Street means. No, it's a place. <laughs> okay, thank it's you. A place not, it's a place in <laughs> Perth, for heaven's sake. Yeah, it's a state of mind. It's okay, a state of mind, excellent. Yeah. And right at the end, it just raggles off into nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs>